Welcome to Shaping the Future, from pandemic to climate change. In this episode, I'm speaking with Dr. René Lertzman, a pioneer in bridging the gap between human psychology and the environmental and climate crisis. René talks here about how climate professionals can become better leaders and show guidance by becoming attuned to those with whom we engage. René also offers a set of principles developed as a tool set for psychological survival at a period in time when uncertainty about the future can lead to existential anxiety. Of course, this is also a time of opportunity, when radical new thinking can shape a vastly better future than the current horizon suggests. Thanks for listening, and please subscribe to the podcast to hear more in this series. In the last few years, we've seen a growing social movement declaring that climate change can no longer be ignored. How do normal, law-abiding, everyday people reach that moment when they're prepared to risk, in some cases, civil disobedience or even being arrested? So the question is really, what are the conditions that optimally allow us to reach that point where we're able to fully register the urgency and the reality of what's happening to a point where we can translate that kind of sense that this is what's real, this is what's happening into our actions, into our behaviors, into actually changing what we do and how we show up, yeah. right? Yeah. So that's the that's the, really the million dollar question is what are those conditions? What are those factors that support that? And I think we've seen such a spectrum of levels of engagement and capacity to really face what's going on. You know, the way that I approach this is through the lens of trauma, actually. And if we consider that climate crisis and climate threats, climate change is a form of trauma. And I don't mean that in the sense that it's necessarily deeply individualized and personal trauma. I'm talking about social, collective, political trauma where we are needing to confront human practices and activities and we're needing to come to terms with with those practices in a way that enables us to process it. To me, the lens of trauma is, is powerful because what generally happens with trauma when we're confronted with events, information, experiences, just a very distressing impact is that we tend to, it's not actually a conscious level, but we tend to want to disengage, to minimize, to manage the anxiety and the complicated feelings and responses that come up. Yeah. And so that leads to the question, well, okay, how is it and why is it that some people seem to have this ability to actually be with what's happening? You know, there's a phrase being with the trouble that Donna Haraway coined not long ago that's very relevant. And I think that there's a few factors that usually come together with this. So it's not any one thing. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that there's the sense of oneself as being part of something bigger, of feeling like it's not all on me and it's not up to me to make everything to better and to change what's happening, but I'm actually part of a much bigger collective. So it's like a moving towards a sense of action where you find other people who are prepared to take that action with you in a way. Yeah, I think that, yeah, if we, if we think about how do people process and manage trauma and difficult circumstances, 
we have to look at that in terms of relationship and connection and how do we scaffold ourselves? How do we support ourselves to actually move towards what feels really overwhelming, really painful and scary? Did you think it correlates to therapy where you're sort of, you're, you're taking an action that could end, you could end up being arrested and hopefully nothing bad comes of that, but you're sort of, you're prepared to, to cross borders that normally you just wouldn't cross. Mm-hmm. Because... Absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I think that the therapeutic context offers a lot of insight and resources for us, but we have to think very creatively and not too literally about it. But mm-hmm. this, is, this is a lot of what I've been doing in my work. And specifically, I have a project funded by the KR Foundation called Project Inside Out. And Project Inside Out is basically translating best practices, insights, tools, research, perspectives that have been primarily generated in more therapeutic clinical contexts and how to apply that to what are tools, frameworks that can work in a non-therapeutic context that can lead to activation, lead to our capacity to face what's hard. And so part of that act of distilling and pulling out what works in therapeutic contexts, you know, includes things like um, the relationship. So in therapy, you know, there's a creation of a, of a container that you are, you, you feel like you're in it with someone, you're partnering with someone, you know, and that in itself is really huge. Um, The trust and the connection and a lot of my work, I, I advise climate organizations, climate professionals and practitioners to see themselves more and more as partners and as guides um, and, and, you know, have the ability to be more emotionally tuned in to what people might be experiencing and trusting that when we show up in that way, you know, we actually are enabling people mm-hmm. to feel more able to face and hold what's hard. You know, that comes straight out of psychotherapeutic practice. Okay. There was a paper, I think it was published a couple of years ago, called Deep Adaptation. It has the premise that collapse of society is inevitable. And it was very popular for this idea of grieving. And I'm just interested because it was attacked recently by a lot of climate scientists who said look this is doomerism and this is not helping and part of me was thinking well I kind of agree with that but at the same time there's a lot of people that took a lot of value from it and yet did it help them get through the trauma maybe to somewhere else and I was just wondering if you'd heard of it or whether you've got any thoughts on this whole doomerism is quite a quite an apt term for, for how some people respond but it, I don't does it last forever or is it a, a phase or well I think we need to be extremely careful about uh, what I think of as these narrative wars uh, what no. is the narrative is it a doomer narrative is it a hopeful is it optimism is it this is it that you know and right now there's a lot of dynamic you know discussion debate on what is How do we understand what's happening? How do we frame it? How do we create that narrative? And there's a lot of sensitivity to, rightfully so, the tone, the implications of, you know, what's being dubbed as doomer or doomerism. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it's actually incredibly complicated. One thing we do know is that a lot of people felt when that paper came out 
they felt uh, understood that their experiences they had been having perhaps privately were now being named and acknowledged. So that in itself is unbelievably powerful, right? We need to take a page out of that book, which is, you know, when we name and acknowledge what people are already are feeling, then that's where the, the traction happens. That's where people feel like, okay, I can join with this. I want to be part of this. There's that piece of it. However, um, you know, the, the problem and the risk and the danger of any narrative, including a narrative like that, is that um, we got to really be watchful of, you know, tendency to want to sort of collapse into there's not a lot that we can do anyway. We need to just make peace with this or we, may, we need to reconcile with this. We need to go through our grief. We need to, yeah. you know, and, the, and for a lot of reasons, we need to be super careful about that because that's not necessarily reflecting reality. That's reflecting a particular mode of relating to the circumstances. So anytime we've got a narrative that, you know, is either on one end or the other end, it's a, huge signal it's a red flag that something's going on psychologically which is that you know we're we're sort of we're not being as keyed into the nuances to the to the both and yeah reality of the situation which is that yes we're actually on a downward trajectory yes there's profound loss devastation and will continue to be so yes we know that things are heading in a particular direction like there's no disputing that and concurrently We've got to push ourselves to stay connected with what is happening currently, the efforts that are underway, the galvanization, the capacity for humans to in you know to activate yeah. to engage that's happening concurrently as well, and so the question is how do we hold these different yeah, so uh, realities we, together yeah, is how do we come through it and maybe engage? meaningfully after we've had that sort of trauma experience. There seems to be another a layer because we're, we're talking there about people, whether you agree with that sort of paper or not, you are talking about people who all agree that climate change is very real and, and a very big threat to society. And then you have this sort of massive polarization of society at the moment. And this doesn't seem to be going away. It seems to be sort of very much fixed in our society now. And I think it's adding an extra layer of anxiety to how we how we move forward. Have you had thoughts on this sort of polarization of society of how we're all trying to, to get through this? Mm -hmm. It's a real web at the moment of COVID, climate, politics, everything is sort of, you know, mm -hmm. hunted into it. Right. Well, polarization is itself a defense mechanism, right? So we, mm -hmm. we go into a polarized, binary, reductive, sort of black and white, us, them, othering mode when we are feeling threatened, vulnerable, fearful, and insecure. And it's not an individual phenomenon. It's ob obviously at a social, cultural, political level that this happens. The way I relate with polarization is, is again, through the lens of anxiety. Yeah. So I'm always thinking in terms of, well, what's actually going on underneath? What, where's the anxiety? Where's the existential threat? And then the only way that we can actually navigate polarization is actually through the act of deeply listening 
and deeply acknowledging and affirming what those anxieties and fears may be and creating um, you know, context where people feel safe enough to express whatever it is they're feeling without fear of being attacked. And, and you know, I just saw a paper come out, it might've been yesterday where research is showing that more and more people, at least in the, I, I think it might've been American, are reticent to share their political views right now because precisely because of the fear of, of just being attacked, just the, the, everything just feels very charged right now. Sure. Okay. And is that maybe because their views are shifting? <laughs> because it seems like America is a, is a place of great change at the moment and mm. shifting sands. No one really knows exactly. the outcomes. Again. Well, it's, it's shifting sands, but it all goes back to, to me, how do we show up and what does it look like to be a leader right now, no matter what your, uh, context is no matter where you are whether you're university or whether you're you know in your community or organizations i think we all have right now a mandate to show up as leaders telling a very different story and one that is actually based on a commitment to to really acknowledge and listen to the anxieties and the fears and concerns that people are having. So the reason why I think the polarization is swirling around is there's frankly, there's a vacuum. There's a lack of leadership who are able to say, if you're feeling X, Y, and Z, that makes sense. It makes sense that you'd be feeling this way. This is how I'm feeling. This is how I see things. And I see the opportunity right now for us to have a broader conversation about how what you care about and what is, is, you know, scaring you and what we're, you know, it's like, it's that kind of capacity to acknowledge, to affirm, and then bring people into a much bigger narrative yeah. of, you know, you might feel that we're not in this together, but we are. And this is what we need to do and you're needed and, you know, we're all needed and that kind of thing. So sort of driving towards a more empathetic response in a way where we... Yeah. I mean, it, it sounds soft to say it, but if we were to bring in a more empathetic, um, the word I use is attuned. So if we show up as more attuned, we would be so much more effective across the board. We would be so much more effective at our climate work, at our, you know, um, ability to navigate the really intense anxieties that are activated right now and how that can easily be the sort of runaway train into really not good behaviors. The empathy and the attunement is actually what calms that down. And we all know that, like the, the research is out on that. That's not a new thing, but yet how do we actually get there to do that? Okay. And, and that is kind of the opposite of of how many of us approach a lot of situations because you're very keen to tell someone they're wrong and you're right or these kinds of things. No, the research says this when that person is never going to respond to that argument. Exactly. And it's kind of, so it's counterintuitive to go to empathy and, and this sense of attunement. It's totally counterintuitive for anyone working on climate and environmental degradation. And that's where I spend a lot of my attention when I run workshops or trainings or advising. A lot of the emphasis is on our mindset and how do we shift our mindset 
from one of an educator, a cheerleader, or a writer, which is like pointing the finger and basically kind of telling people versus showing up as a guide, you know, and a guide who actually knows a lot and can, and can direct us, mm -hmm. but, but really is capable of listening and tuning in and conducting ourselves much more like a partner than a, what I would call a writer or a teller, you mm -hmm. know, telling and selling is sort of the, but you know, a lot of my work is, is influenced by research and motivational interviewing, you know, which was co-founded by a Welsh doctor, Steve Rolnick and an American Bill Miller. And it is, you know, one of the most robustly researched public health methodologies out there. And so they've uncovered a lot of powerful practices. And one of them is how to show up when you are, let's say, a clinician and you have incredible expertise and you know exactly what the other person needs to do to change their lifestyle, their diet, obesity, drug addiction, you know, and the, the, the whole mindset is, let me tell you what you need to do. You need to quit this. You need to stop doing that. You need to exercise more, a little bit like, frankly, the new obesity campaign that I've just yeah, heard yeah. get launched, <laughs> where as if you tell people, literally, it's just this incredible fantasy that if you tell people, oh, there's this many calories in that, or, you know, here's yeah. how to exercise better, that that's going to magically transform our behavior and that that we just know is completely false so it's kind of amazing to me that we haven't yet been able to really look at what truly works in the realm of behavior change and mm -hmm. um and so but you, you know it is a huge i just want to acknowledge that it's it's a significant mindset shift it's not an easy thing to do when there's so much urgency when we know a lot to actually shift from that telling and educating and cheerleading but it sounds like you've identified a way of navigating to take us forward in a way and yet you know covid is a tsunami the next big tsunami is is going to be the economy for example and then there's there's climate which is just building all the time and it's it's actually the waves breaking around us in many places how do we take this strategy or how do you take this strategy and and sort of take it to scale well, I think to start, we need to be willing to take a real look at how we do what we do, our theories of change in particular, our mindsets and have the ability to, to critically assess, are they serving us? Are they actually working? So that's the first step is to recognize how am I showing up and what am I doing that potentially is contributing to the activation, to the tension, the polarization and so forth. And the next step is how can I support myself and those I work with in developing new capabilities that are based on empathy, active listening, you know, like yeah, actual yeah, yeah. skill sets that truly support our ability to be resilient. And all of this is leading towards our ability as humans to work together more functionally, right? To actually come together and work in groups at a much more functional, effective level. And in order to do that, we need to be able to, ha you know, have new practices where we for example, bring our full selves in, that we have, you know, just some simple practices. 
So is it a form of improving our sense of community in a way? Yeah, it's, well, it's, it's about situating ourselves as members of communities and asking how can we then contribute most effectively and support the health of these communities. So one example I have, so I mentioned Project Inside Out, which mm -hmm. is this initiative that is launching in October. And one of the things that we've created with Project Inside Out are these guiding principles. And the guiding principles are primarily directed for organizations, not, you know, as individuals, some of it relates, but as organizations, the, the idea here is if you apply these guiding principles to your work, you will actually be able to evolve and transform and shift how we show up in a way that's commensurate with the rate of change and turbulence and uh, disruption that is coming our way. Yeah. So the, I'll just run through them really quickly. Yeah, sure. The first, the first guiding principle is about a is called attune. So it's really about attunement, and attunement starts with attuning with ourselves and really getting in touch with where we're at, how are we doing, our levels of stress and anxiety, taking responsibility for managing and working with our own experience. But it really is also about our ability to tune in with those that we are seeking to engage with our stakeholders, with our colleagues, with our partners, with our audiences, with our you know, members of other communities to really ensure that we are sensing into what's going on with others beyond focusing on their values, their beliefs, or their attitudes. Like I, I don't care so much about those things as much as what's actually going on with people and where are they feeling stressed, stuck, and so forth, and tuning in and meeting that, like really grounding our work in that. And the second guiding principle is reveal, which is goes to the theme you raised with Jen Bendel's deep mm. adaptation, which is how do we tell the story? How do we tell the truth about what's going on in a way that doesn't completely shut people down? And so reveal is this idea that we can show up more vulnerably, transparently, and openly, that it doesn't have to be this kind of like, oh, I don't want to scare people, or I don't want to be too positive, sort of rah-rah, but how do we find that middle place? And so reveal is about how do we be authentic? How do we be real with our in our communications and how we show up and therefore give others permission to be real as well? And the third is convene. And convene is about recognizing that incredible things happen when people convene and work in groups, particularly. Mm -hmm. And that as organizations, we need to see ourselves less as the, you know, the, the ones who are pushing and mobilizing, but more as conveners, where we create conditions where people can come together to brainstorm, to organize, to, you know, so forth. But to see that when people have space to openly and safely talk about their feelings and their re reactions to what's going on, things change very quickly. And we, we designed a pilot program as part of Project Inside Out that the focus was on air travel and we partnered with a faith-based organization and we did an online workshop and we also had what we called these grounding sessions, meaning like, you know, staying grounded. And, and we, we just had people gather and there was no agenda, but just talk about our relationship with air travel. And what happens is people very quickly move into a problem solving mode. Once they have that space to just say, you know, 
I feel really conflicted. You know, part of me wants to still do this, but another part of me doesn't. But without the agenda, people can come to that place of, but you know what, I, I feel ready to stop flying or to stop flying for personal reasons or whatever. So that's convene. The, the fourth guiding principle is equip, which is about capacity building about building our skill sets, our, you know, having tools and resources to become more effective at influencing whatever our sphere of influence might be. Yeah. And there's the fifth, which is um, sustain. And sustain is how do we keep ourselves going the long haul, right? So how do we encourage ourselves to go beyond the the pledge? I call it, it's it's nicknamed beyond the pledge. Mm-hmm. Because we get kind of hung up on like pledges and, you know, challenges and there's this next thing coming up and the cop and, you know, it's like, there's always one thing coming up, but how do we actually think way beyond that? And that goes to your point about community, that it's about actually, if you apply all these guiding principles and really nurture, build a sense of connectivity with those that you're working with, you are building in the resilience that we're needing to stay connected yeah. and effective for the long haul it's like a stronger fabric if you like of, of exactly i think the last thing i would just say is that when we talk about the psychological impact of these crises uh, climate change covid um, political unrest economy that there's a tendency to go reductive um, just because that's how our brains work like that's just what happens as we we, we are activated and we tend to go towards, okay, what do I do? Um, should I focus on individual kind of behavior change? Should I focus on the system level change? Where are the levers? Where are the, the most impactful levers for change? And my, my observation is there's a tendency that we can have all of us to mm-hmm. get kind of fixated on, is it this, is it that? And that what we really need to be doing and encouraging each other to do and holding each other accountable to do is to be as, as non-binary as possible, to really notice that tendency to wanna say, is it individual versus s- systemic and social? Is it this versus that? And that is usually a clue that we are activated, that we're yeah. not at our best because when we're at our best, we're actually thinking much more systemically, strategically nuanced. It's messier. It's a bit more complicated. But, you know, I just wanted to mention that because I think for some people, they might think, oh, psychology individual. But do you think think there's um, a fear about this messiness that comes up in a lot of these situations? All these relationships seem to be quite messy all these situations are quite messy they're complex and unpicking that just becomes more complex and that's why people take this reductive approach is because it seems to make sense even if it doesn't actually deliver anything well i think that there's ways of navigating complexity wicked problems super wicked problems in a way that's clear and organized and highly strategic without being reductive and binary I think that, frankly, we need to just recognize that we have this incredible opportunity right now to radically skill up our ways of thinking and our mindsets 
you know, I've just been reading John Elkington's book, Green Swans, for example, and, you know, I appreciate what he's laying out. And, and to me, the, the part two of it is, okay, well, what are the mindsets that we need to be evolving in order to actually function in a effective way when it comes to these wicked problems? Yeah. And I think there's a humility here for, for seeing that, okay, this is actually, we, we have to, we have to think differently. And, and I think that thinking differently has a lot to do with being able to individually and collectively and socially help each other to manage our anxieties and to stay kind of with what Dan Siegel, the psychologist who I cite a lot and in my TED talk, you know, he talks about this window of tolerance. Yes. You know, how do we keep ourselves and each other in this window where we can stay kind of integrated effective, you know, access to our prefrontal cortex, you know, really like balanced in the context of, of high stakes turbulence. Like, like that's sort of the ultimate human challenge right now. It does seem like a lot of what you're saying is that the inner strength is built largely by reaching out and, and this attunement. It's in, it's in the context of relationship is what I'm getting at. Yeah. yeah. That, that we, we need, we need each other to, build these reserves, this resilience. Yeah, the very sort of human response as opposed to the sort of Superman <laughs> or even totally. indivi individual sort of, yeah. Absolutely, okay. yeah. Look, thank you very much. It's, it's been a really, really good interview. And, um, oh, I'm glad. Thank good. you. Thank um, you. It's great talking with you. Mm -hmm.